Father in heaven, we thank you for our Christ, our sure and steady anchor in the face of all that we experience in this life, from the struggles with sin to the battles with sickness, the bondage of sin, Lord, even the face of death. Lord, you are our anchor in this storm. Thank you and praise you, Lord, that we have no fear that we will lose our, our, our salvation, for you are our hope, and we can look to you always. And Father, we pray that you would continue to give us this attitude as we open up your book now, help us to see, look to your word and look to your instruction uh, for the war and the battle that we fight, fight while here on earth until you call us home. We ask that your spirit would be our teacher, speak to each one here, and Lord, thank you for your perfect and good word, speaking always that which is true, always that which reflects your character. Lord, we pray that you would shape and mold us and give us a better understanding of your will for us through our time in your word now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, good morning, brothers and sisters. Again, uh, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to uh, the book of uh, Numbers. Numbers chapter 31 is where we'll be today. Numbers 31. All right. Today's passage is one of those passages that are difficult and challenging because it deals with the subject of war, war. And many of us may be in these days, may be sensitive to war. I know throughout our lives, in my lifetime, our country has gone through a, few, a couple of wars, and I'm sure in many of our lifetimes we have seen our country go through it. And maybe you know family members who have been in the service, who have fought in wars, and so... I know it can be a sensitive subject. I know that it's a political, always it's a political issue for many. And, uh, but, uh, you know, the, what's important for us is not just what your thoughts are. I'm sure you have thoughts of it, about it. Uh, maybe you think that it's simply a necessary evil in a world of evil. Uh, perhaps you are one of those who think that and understand, believe that war is never justified. The taking of life is, is just wrong. Um, but what does, what really matters is what does God say? What does the Bible say about war? Does the Bible uh, teach uh, the, that Christians ought to believe in no war ever? Uh, do they teach us in what is known as the just war theory perhaps? Or, or maybe um, does it teach a, even a, what might be called a preemptive preventative war? Well, uh, we want to be able to answer that question in detail, but this passage teaches us much about war and the people of God. The Christian's view on war is to be informed not by popular opinion, not by uh, political uh, parties, uh, but it ought to be, nor our own thoughts, but it ought to be informed by what Scripture says. And you can't go far reading in your Bible without coming across passages like the one we read today. 
where the Lord God Almighty commands his people, Israel, to go to war, to go make war. And while we maintain that the church is not Israel, therefore we are not commanded to, in this similar way, the, war, the church is not promised a land to conquer and possess, the lessons that we find here in Israel's preparation for war as they, as they camped in the plains of Moab are lessons that the church, the people of God today, can apply in our lives. The church of Jesus Christ is neither commanded nor forbidden to wage war against any nation or people today. Rather, the New Testament emphasizes that we are in a different kind of war. A war that is not against flesh and blood, as we read in our call to worship, but it is a spiritual war, a spiritual battle. It's against not physical enemies, but spiritual enemies, spiritual forces. And it's a battle for the souls of men and women. Our passage teaches us today, God's people, lessons in preparation for war. And not, and for Israel, it is a physical war, but I hope that we'll be able to show you that some of the, the principles that they apply and they, they will, uh, that they are, need to consider as they go to physical war are principles that we as a church today can apply and consider as we go about our spiritual war for Christ. Now, as you've studied uh, the book through the book of Numbers with me, I hope you remember, uh, quick quiz, why did the first generation, why were they condemned to die in the wilderness? You might have answers if you say, well, because they disobeyed God, that's, that's good, that's what my kids say whenever I discipline them, but that's not good enough, okay? Uh, well, it's not just because you disobeyed me, there's something you did to disobey me. How did they, 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 well, they rebelled against God. Okay, yes, they rebelled against God. How did they rebel against God? What did they, they refuse to do or not do or do that was wrong that was a rebellion, that was a disobedience to God? They refused to go into the promised land. They refused to go into to fight the people of the land. They failed to trust God. And that, in that way, they rebelled and disobeyed and were condemned for 40 years in the wilderness. That was the first generation is because they refused to fight the war that God called them to do. They refused to take possession of the land that God had given them. And so now the second generation in the plains of Moab has a very similar choice. It's, history is repeating itself. It's now on the cusp of entering the promised land. They, across the Jordan River, they, they, see, they see the city of Jericho. Will they trust the Lord and go to war as he commands them? And we will see. And in this passage, this chapter, he prepares them for war through, first of all, an initial war with Midian, Midian which we find here in chapter 31. And we're going to make several quick observations uh, about war that we can learn here that Israel picks up. It's a long chapter, so we'll be spending quite a bit of time reading the chapter. But what we're going to find here is five observations, five lessons, whatever you want to call it, that prepare God's people for war. For Israel, it's for the physical war that they would fight in the promised land. 
But for us today, we're not called to fight a physical war. We may be in countries, and Christians may be in countries where they are soldiers and they're called to fight wars, and, and that's, that's one thing, that's a political endeavor. But we as God's people all around the world, we are all fighting a similar war, a spiritual war for souls of men and women. And uh, we read our call to worship. There's an armor that we need to put on and be ready for this war. Anyways, hopefully this, these observations will encourage us as we go about the war that we face. Anyways, we begin then in verses 1 to 7, this chapter 31. And we find the first point is instruction to make war. The, we observe God's instructions here to make war. The whole thing's really instruction. But this particularly, we see God's instructions to Israel to go and make war. And so... Uh, God is not anti-war, okay? Uh, he, he's, a, he's, he's here telling Israel to go to war. Let's read 1 to 7 of chapter 31. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you will be gathered to your people. Moses spoke to the people saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to the war. So there were furnished from the thousands of Israel a thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. Moses sent them a thousand from each tribe to the war, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, to the war with them, and the holy vessels and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. So they made war against Midian, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and they killed every male. The most obvious observation that we can make here is that the Lord is one who is commanding Israel to go to war. This war is what is known uh, by uh, Christian scholars as what we call holy war. That's a holy war that's something that God clearly commands. This is an, a war for resources where one nation wants something and can't have it, and so they go to war. Uh, This is God instructing Israel to arm themselves to go out to war against these Midianites. Now, these Midianites that are mentioned here were basically a conglomerate of nomadic tribes that were associated with many other tribes and peoples in the Old Testament, including among them the the Moabites, the Moabites in, in in this particular region. But why does God want Israel to go to war against the Midianites? The answer we read in verse 2 and verse 3 is to take vengeance upon the Midianites, to, to take full vengeance for the sons of Israel in verse 2, to execute the Lord's vengeance in verse 3. God is seeking to get vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so when he sends this people, uh, this people to war, it is to take vengeance. The part of some aspect of it is for vengeance, for God's vengeance. And what God is doing here is he is punishing Midian for basically what they did to Israel back in Numbers chapter 25 at Peor. Recall there that the Moabites and the Midianites had uh, worked together and had invited the Israelites to the sacrifices of their gods. They invited them and they came and they joined them to eat and they joined them to, to worship their gods. And a part of that worship was acts of sexual immorality, which was common in, among the pagan religions of that day, as a part of their worship. They even brought that worship into the camp. And of course, remember the story how Phineas in his zeal came and, and, and killed those who, the, the couple who had practiced that. God judged Israel 
because of their immorality and of joining together with the Moabites and the Midianites. With a plague, you recall. A plague that only was stopped because of Phineas' jealousy, but had already killed 24,000 people and would could have been easily much more. But Midian had intentionally, in their, according to, by, in Numbers 25, had intentionally sought to destroy Israel by causing them to be unfaithful to the Lord. By being unfaithful to the Lord, they knew that God would judge them just as he was doing with a plague and had he done throughout their wilderness wandering. But now, because of their sinful and their, their opposition to God's people, God was taking his vengeance upon these people who had caused his people to sin. It is a, there's, a, there's a judgment upon not only sinners, but it's a, it's a stricter, severe, more severe judgment for those who would cause their people, people to sin. Interesting, just as a, just a couple observations here, not all the soldiers are needed, and now the whole army is coming out, and it's uh, not all the men, but only a thousand from each tribe. Uh, everyone has a part, we see. All the, each tribe has a part, except, of course, for the tribe of Levi. They're, they're the priests, and so they focus on the spiritual elements of the, of the nation, but they don't have a... They don't have a part in the land either. But as further confirmation that this is holy war, we see that they are accompanied by Phineas, the priest. He's the son of the high priest, Eliezer, right? And he went along, and then he brought the holy vessels, and he brings the trumpets, and the holy vessels are there because they remind Israel of God's presence. This would have included the ark as well. But the trumpets that were to be described in Numbers 10 were to be blown in times of war and to remind God's people of their dependence, and so we see God is present here. This is a war that God is, God is about. God is calling them, and God's with them in this, in this war. And we see and observe that in contrast to the first generation, the second generation obeys. They obeys, and, and they just as the Lord commanded, they went to war just as God, as it, he, they were told. Israel, we find, is being faithful to their God in going out to war against Midian. You may think that war is wrong, but here Israel is going to war, and they are being faithful to God in doing so. This is their, their being faithful to God's command to them. And their faithfulness here would carry on into, of course, the war in the promised land. So it's kind of like the first step of going to war here against Midian would hopefully encourage them to continue to be faithful in the war in the promised land. Now, every generation of God's people must be faithful to obey the Lord's command, whether it be to make war or to make peace. Now, I want to always add that even as we talk about being, Israel, being faithful when they go to war, we must be careful and emphasize that God does not command the people of God today. He does not command the church to go to war against any nation. If, any, if, our, if our presence, our leader says, oh, we must go to holy war against this nation or against that nation, you can say, no, that's, that's a lie. God does not call us to that kind of war. Uh, <clears throat> we must be careful not to do that. We are not to take vengeance on behalf of the Lord even in our own minds or even, our, or even vengeance for ourselves. But rather, it's interesting, the church today, instead of being called to, uh, to war against nations, we're called to instead to make peace. We're called to be peaceable. James 3, 17, 18 talks about that. Another passage of Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. The people of God today, though we are in a war, a spiritual battle, we, we've already read that Ephesians 6, 
We are to be about making peace. We are to be faithful in making peace with all men. While at the same, and we are to be striving to make peace through making war. Not physical war, but a spiritual war. The spiritual war of Ephesians 6.12. You know, how do we come to know peace? How did you come to know peace? Through Jesus Christ, right? First of all, we were at enmity with God, and so it's through Jesus Christ that we had peace with him. But through Jesus Christ, we have come to learn that peace from God is something that we ought to extend to others. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the spiritual battle that we're about, to put on the armor of God, which is basically just the truths of God, the, the truths of the gospel that we're to put on, is which we're to take forth into the world and share with, is the means by which others may come to know the peace with God and peace with others. This world will never know peace, everlasting, eternal, until everyone believes in Jesus Christ. And that will come, not come until when Christ returns. But we are ourselves to arm ourselves for the spiritual war. We're to put on the armor that God provides. And with God's truths, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, we're, to, we're destroying speculations and philosophies. We're about, war is about destruction. And our, but what we're destroying is, is, not, is not nations and, and peoples. We're, we're destroying the speculations and philosophies, the, the thoughts of man that, are, that would, anyone would dare to rise up a, against the knowledge of God. We want to let God's word bear, come to bear upon all, every man and woman's soul so they will know that when they deny God's existence, do, refuse to believe in him, they're being foolish. And that only, only choice of hope, only option of hope is that they would believe in, in, in Christ and repent of their sin. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so we see this, the first observation, instruction war, is that God commands it for uh, the people of God, and they need to be faithful to God's command. And just as we are called to be a, a fight a spiritual battle, we need to be faithful to that spiritual battle. But make no mistake, this, there, in the war there is things that we are about that must be destroyed. And that's the second observation that we find here in this passage, that there is destruction in war. No surprise there, right? Verses 8 to 18 and um, this is going to be uh, this is going to be pretty um, pretty graphic. So uh, hopefully you are have the mind of the Lord as we read this. Destruction of war, verse eight through eighteen. They killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain. Evi and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with a sword. The sons of Israel captured the women of Midian and their little ones, and all their cattle and all their flocks and all their goods they plundered. Then they burned all their cities where they lived and all their camps with fire. They took all the spoil and all the prey, both of man and of beast. They brought the captives and the prey and the spoil to Moses and to Eliezer the priest and to the congregation of the sons of Israel. To the camp at the plains of Moab, which are by the Jordan opposite Jericho. Moses and Eliezer, the priests, and all the leaders of the congregation went out to meet them outside the camp. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of the thousands, and the captains of hundreds who had come from service in the war. 
And Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so that plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known man intimately. But all the girls who have not known man intimately, spare for yourselves. And thus, God's word says. The uh, Civil War Union Army General William Tecumseh Sherman is known to have said that war is hell. Young men may glory in war and might think it's a glorious thing and love to fight one another and think they're in war, but for the men and women today who've actually seen war, they would tell you that war is hell, as General Sherman did. And while we know that this is not literally hell, hell is far worse, the sentiment is understood, right? You just read it. We just read it. This is a terrible death and destruction in, the, in war. We see the destruction, not only verse 7, we'd already learned that, every, that Israel killed every male that they faced. Verse 8 further tells us that they killed the kings of Midian, the leaders, as well as Balaam, that pagan prophet, the mastermind, in fact, behind the matter of Peor. They captured all the women and the children, seized all their possessions, they burned their cities, and even then the destruction was not complete. For when they returned to Moses and Eliezer, Moses got angry with them. For the soldiers had spared those women who had caused the sons of Israel to sin against the Lord at Peor. And so, and this was God's vengeance upon Midian. And so every woman who had, and, and by the way, in Deuteronomy 20, which, we, uh, which is a given, the second law given much later, there's, that's what God will instruct the people to, to, to when they conquer that, to kill every, all the men, but to spare uh, the women and, uh, and some of the, and the young children. But in this case, because God was seeking vengeance upon Midian, every woman uh, that had known a man was killed, including all the male children. This was a total destruction of Midian. Only the female children were spared to become slaves or wives to the Israelites. And so in this dreadful way, yes, it is a dreadful way, the Lord executed his vengeance upon Midian for their sin against the Lord. In this way, the Midianite tribe that had lured God's people into idolatry received the just wrath of God. You know, when you and I read this story, it, it troubles us, probably. But all war, but understand this, that this is God's instruction and God's ways are higher than our ways. And we cannot fathom and understand the purposes for which he instructs Israel to do this thing. He actually, he makes it clear he's taking vengeance upon them. But we may not want to understand why does God allow this war? Why is God allowing what's happening in Ukraine? But God in his sovereignty, in his knowledge, in his wisdom has a purpose in it all. And it's for the good of those who love him. But all war, this one, including the wars we see today, is a reminder of the judgment that is coming when Christ returns to destroy the nations who oppose him. All war is a reminder of God's coming wrath. 
This war is a reminder clearly of God's wrath for sin. But all war reminds us so. For one day Christ returns, as we read in Revelation 19, verse 11 to 13, where John writes, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed and robed, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. This is a picture of Jesus returning on a white horse. Not on a donkey. He's coming on a white horse to conquer and destroy. He comes to judge and wage war against all the nations that have risen up to oppose him. His robe is dipped in blood. There's judgment. There's death. It's not his blood. It's the blood of those that he's going to trample. We know that this was coming. In fact, we know that God in his holy justice has already done so once before. He destroyed the whole world before, if you remember, in the flood in Genesis 6. Killing men, women, children, animals, all because of man's rebellion. And God, was he just in doing so? Yes, he was. For all mankind, because of their sin, deserved that death. All God's judgment, both past and future and everything in between, in war, is just before the Lord. What we should instead be shocked by, though we're shocked by the, the terror and the destruction of this, of this description of war, is that we should be shocked that God has not destroyed us as well. That is what's shocking. If you're not shocked by that, then you've forgotten how sinful you and I are. For we deserve God's wrath. And if God destroyed us and our families in complete totality and burned our homes before we knew Christ, he would have been completely just in doing so because we had rebelled against him too. The destruction of war reminds us of the coming destruction upon all who reject him. And I hope that it spurs us as those who are involved in the spiritual battle to a greater urgency in our own proclamation of the gospel that we would not just sit back, that we would advance with the gospel. For that is the only way in which sinners who are under the condemnation of a holy God are going to be delivered from judgment. Death is, and destruction is not only a reality of war, it's a reality of life. But wherever death is, cleansing from death is needed. And we observe this in our third observation, our third observation, third point, in that there is purification from war that God instructs Israel to do in verses 19 through 24. Moses and Eliezer continue to instruct the soldiers, and you camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed any person, whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves you and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. You shall purify for yourselves every garment and every article of leather and all the work of goat's hair and all articles of wood. Then Eliezer the priest said to the men of war who had gone to battle, this is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded Moses. 
only the gold and the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire, and it shall be clean, but it shall be purified with water for impurity. But whatever cannot stand the fire, you shall pass through the water, and you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean, and afterward you may enter the camp. These soldiers have just returned from a great victory, a great battle. They're heroes. The heroes of war do not make you holy, for they had been involved in death. And we read here that because they had been around, because they were involved in the war, they were unclean before the Lord. They were ceremonially unclean. Those who would touch or be around dead people were unclean. And as we learn back in Numbers 19, such individuals were unclean for a period of seven days. And there was, you can look back there into the elaborate, the, the law of the red heifer, remember that, that was, uh, that was necessary for the purification from those who had been, uh, in, that had been exposed to death. Everyone and everything that was exposed to death is unclean, according to the Lord. Here included in our past, we see clothing and woods and, and various metals and, and treasures. And all of it had to go through a process of purification, and for people, it would involve the purification waters from the ashes of the red heifer. But for the objects, it would go through uh, either a purification through fire and water or just water if it cannot stand fire. And only upon purification could then the Israelite warriors, after seven days, re-enter the camp of Israel along with the possessions that they had taken from war. And what we see here in this lesson, we're reminded here of this lesson, that the death requires purification is that death necessitates a purification. Israel would constantly need, especially as they're about to go to war in the promised land, will they'll need purification as they conquer and, and destroy the cities of, Is- of Canaan and kill the peoples there. And, there, and those peoples were un- under what's known as the, the ban, so they would have to be completely killed. And the purification reminded them and us today that death and the sin that leads to death prevents us, keeps us from being able to enter into the camp of the Lord, to being able to enter into the presence of, of God. Sin and death prevents us from being, having fellowship with the Lord, and therefore purification is required. Of course, we know today that we don't need the red heifer, for we have the blood of Jesus Christ, the death of the Lamb of God who took away all our sins. And it's through him that our sins can be forgiven. And that is uh, the message that we should bring into our world. Uh, today was going to be a communion a little bit later. And that's what we proclaim. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's funny, we, we know that he's resurrected. But communion, where, where he, Jesus has us remembering and proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It's his death on the cross that took, takes away our sins. And that's, our, that's what we hold to. That's what we believe. That was what will, 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 will uh, be our, our hope when we enter into the presence of God. And when he asks, why should I let you into heaven? Well, it's because I did this or that or this or that. That's the wrong place to begin. But it's because of what Christ has done. My hope is in him and his death on the cross for me. 
we make a fourth observation in here, and we move quickly on, and that is, the fourth observation is the distribution of spoils from war. There's a distribution in war, and that happens in almost every war, because people are killed and their things are taken, spoils of war, plunder, and they are, redistrib- they are distributed. Here we see a district, and God gives instructions to Israel about how the spoils of war are to be distributed. And this is a lengthy section, you'll note. Verse 25 and following to verse 47. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You and Eleazar the priests and the heads of the fathers' households of the congregation take account of the booty that was captured, both of man and of animal, and divide the booty between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. Levy a tax for the Lord from the men of war who went out to battle, one in five hundred of the persons, and of the cattle, and of the donkeys, and of the sheep. Take it from their half, and give it to Eliezer the priest, as an offering to the Lord. From the sins of Israel's half, you shall take one drawn out of every fifty of the persons, of the cattle, of the donkeys, and of the sheep from all the animals, and give them to the Levites, who keep charge of the tabernacle of the Lord." Moses and Eleazar the priest did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now the booty that remained from the spoil which the men of war had plundered was 675,000 sheep and 72,000 cattle and 61,000 donkeys and of human beings, of the women who had not known man intimately, all the persons were 32,000. The half, the portion of those who went out to war was as follows. The number of sheep was 337,500 and the Lord's levy of the sheep was 675, and the cattle were 36,000, from which the Lord's levy was 72, and the donkeys were 30,500, from which the Lord's levy was 61, and the human beings were 16,000, from whom the Lord's levy was 32 persons. Moses gave the levy, which was the Lord's offering to Eliezer the priest, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. As for the sons of Israel's half, which Moses separated from the men who had gone to war, now the congregation's half was 337,500 sheep and 36,000 cattle and 30,500 donkeys and the human beings were 16,000. And from the sons of Israel's half, Moses took one drawn out of every 50, both of man and of animals, and gave them to the Levites who kept charge of the tabernacle of the Lord just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Again, we see this emphasis throughout here. This the, that the Moses and Eliezer are doing just as the Lord commanded. This, these instructions are a matter of faithfulness for Israel. But as you kind of have, may have, should have observed by now, as we've read through this all the way up to this point in verse 47, it is apparent that chapter 31 focuses not so much on the war itself. The war itself is described pretty briefly. It doesn't even tell us any strategy that they used. It doesn't tell they, they marched around the city seven times and they blew the trumpets. They didn't do anything like that. It didn't tell they, they, uh, they got some pitch, put some fire, uh, some torch and put a pitcher on top of it and then kind of you know, like snuck out quietly. No strategy whatsoever. Simply the matter of fact is they, they went to war, they killed everyone. But with the predominance and the greatest focus of all this whole chapter is not on the war itself, but on the, the actions and the rituals following the war. And this point here, which takes up the greatest number of verses in the chapter, involve the distribution of the spoils of war. In all war, there are spoils. There, are, uh, there is you know, a plunder that takes place. Things are, thing, possessions are taken. And, um, and what we find here, that there are, God gives guidelines, instructions for how they are to divide the spoils of the war. 
Half of it is to go to the soldiers, the ones who fought. You would think, oh, well, they went to fight. They risked their life, so they should get all of it. No, they, they get half of it. The other half goes to the congregation, those who remain behind. But then on top of the, the halves that each the soldiers get and the congregation get, there's to be a tax on each group's share. A 1 in 500, a 0.2% tax on the soldier's half, and a 1 in 50, or a 2% tax on the congregation's half. And we, we learn here that this tax that was to be levied was to be given to the Lord. It's an offering to the Lord. It's something that was given back to the Lord. From what that which the Lord gives us, we give back a portion of that which he gives to us. It was given uh, and given to the Lord by giving it to the priests and to the Levites, respectively. And you just can't miss that the, there's an exact counting of, of all the animals. There, there's probably some approximation but the, there is, that is possible here. But the, the details of the, the numbers that say an exact half was this and, and what was 1.2% is this and, point, and 2% is this amount. It just is a, it's, it sounds like an accountant you know, who's writing, keeping this record. And uh, account, and then just one of the further just testimonies that this is a real historical event before even that, the record of it is here. But Moses observed this distribution just as the Lord commanded. And in distributing the, the spoils in this manner, Israel was being taught a lesson. Israel was being reminded that their victory in war involved everyone. That when a nation, the, nation, the people of God go to war, it involves everyone. It's not just those who go to war, who fight the war, the, the 12,000, but the ones who remain behind also are involved in the war. And the ones who serve in the tabernacle, the, the priests and the leaders, they also are involved in the war. It takes a whole nation. It takes all of the people of God to work together in going into war. And of course, this is, this is, this is probably uh, should be apparent even when nations go to war. It, it's not just those who go to fight the battles that are involved in the war, but it's their it's their spouses, their, their children who remain behind, their parents who remain behind. It's the rest of the nation who works hard. We, we think, you know, probably best well known is World War II when uh, men who went to fight war, the, the many of the wives had to start rolling up the armies and, and doing work in our nation, even as there was shortage and all that and sacrifices were made. And certainly uh, in this case where the people of God called a war, there needs to be those who help the people to, to express their dependence and worship and pray to the Lord. And that's where the, the spiritual leaders were coming in to encourage people to be faithful to God. This war that Israel fought involved the whole nation, just as wars often involve a whole nation. And that's why it's so difficult when, um, when uh, in wars, uh, nations are divided, because that actually hurts them in their wars. But that's another strategy. And just as it takes a whole nation to work together in going to war, this is true for the people of God today. It takes the whole people of God when we, as we are going about in spiritual battle. It's not just you alone when you're out there and you're, and you're just like you're, you're, at your, you're having lunch with your coworker and they kind of say, oh, what'd you do this weekend? And you're like, oh, man, what, what, uh, uh, went to church. Or, you know, you're like, you're, you know, there's a pop, you know, that we've all, Trust me, I've been there myself. Okay, there's an opportunity for the... I went to church, I went to worship the Lord. I had an encounter with a holy God. And, uh, but that, you're not alone when you're there. Now, yes, God's with you. 
But you know, when, we must understand this is a spiritual battle when you have those opportunities. And then when you should find, like, oh, I'm, I'm finding myself simply being quiet a lot of times. I need help. You need help. You need to share that with others. Say, brothers, sisters, please pray for me because when I'm at work, I'm, I'm afraid to talk about my faith. Will you pray for me? Will you help me, encourage me to, to be more bold at work or at my, with my neighbors? Uh, you know, we just think evangelism or our evangelism is just an individual thing, but, but we need the, the support and encouragement of one another. We need to know that we're not alone in this battle. We need to work together. And uh, the distribution of spoils, it just reminds us of that. We may not, all of us here in this church may not all do the same amount of work for the Lord, but we're all involved in the same work of making disciples of Jesus Christ. We work together uh, and not against each other. Well, lastly, we want to make one final observation from this text about war and that there is salvation in war. There is salvation in war. Not salvation from fighting war, but there is, here we see there is salvation in this war of lives in war. Verse 48 to 54. Then the officers, who were over the thousands of the army, the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds, approached Moses. And they said to Moses, your servants have taken a census of men of war who are in our charge, and no man of us is missing. So we have brought an, as an offering to the Lord what each man found Articles of gold, armlets and bracelets, signet rings, earrings and necklaces to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. Moses and Eliezer, the priests, took the gold from them, all kinds of wrought articles, all the gold of the offering which they offered up to the Lord from the captains of the thousands and the captains of hundreds was 16,750 shekels. The men of war had taken booty, every man for himself. So Moses and Eliezer, the priests, took the gold from the captains of the thousands and of hundreds and brought it to the tent of meeting as a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord. And so after the battle, the men, the soldiers, took a census of their numbers. Did they lose anyone? They, they have to give reports, uh, report to uh, people who may have lost uh, their sons or their fathers or their spouses. And they surprisingly learned that in this battle, and from the number of uh, the, 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 uh, the, the captives that they had received, uh, having sending 12,000, these 12,000 men out, they probably would have, were outnumbered by the number of men among the Midianites. And the miracle is that here, the astounding thing is that not a single soul was lost among the Israelite soldiers. They hadn't lost anyone. And they, and, and these soldiers, when they recognized this, knew that it was from the Lord. And so that's why, because they knew that it was the Lord's provision that sa- had saved them from death, because in, in war, soldiers die, they brought an, uh, an offering to the Lord, a free will offering to the Lord, not, necessar- not commanded by God in any way, but they wanted to bring an offering to the Lord out of the, the treasures, the, the, uh, the, the booty that they had taken from the Midianites. And you notice that it says in verse 50, they offered it to Moses and Eliezer, quote, to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. What does that mean? Is it because they maybe had sinned in war, therefore they may need to make atonement? That's one possible interpretation. Uh, but, you know, 
and, and certainly in war, soldiers do sometimes do things that are, are, can, are sinful, and uh, perhaps that's their idea. But I believe that this word, phrase, make atonement for ourselves, is that they had realized that God had saved their lives. And because God had saved their lives, just like how the Lord had saved the firstborn sons of Israel in the Passover, remember that? These soldiers understood that since the Lord saved their lives, their lives belonged to the Lord, just as all the firstborn sons of Israel belonged to the Lord. And they couldn't offer Levites in their stead. And so what they offered instead was that they offered from their plunder, gold. And it was given to the Lord as a, as a, because they couldn't give their lives to the, to the temple service. They gave of their riches that they had received, and they gave that to the Lord as an atonement for themselves, a representation, a ransom for each of their lives that now they realize because the Lord had saved them in war, their lives belong to God. When someone saves you, you can't help but feel that you're, you're indebted to them, right? Uh, at least that's, you ought to feel that way. The view of the mercies of God present our bodies a holy living sacrifice to the Lord. The treasures that was given to the Lord by these soldiers was then a reminder to every soldier that would stay in the temple treasury as a reminder that what they gave there was a reminder to them that their lives belong to God. And soldiers that go out to war, that return, and when they return, they, they, need to, they should ought to recognize that they return by the gracious salvation of the Lord. For there are a good number of soldiers that, that don't return. And in the providence of God, God saved some. In thankfulness, soldiers recognize this and therefore live their lives for the Lord. Now, as Christians today, the, I think the parallel is pretty obvious that we who are saved from sin and death by Jesus Christ ought to make us realize that our lives belong to the Lord. And therefore, we should live our lives to strive to please Him. We're not, we don't live our lives to make an atonement for our sins. That, pay, that payment has already been made by Jesus Christ. But we can recognize that our lives belong to him by living our lives for him, right? And we can live our lives for him by doing what he calls us to do. And he calls us to go to war, to fight the spiritual battle, to fight the good fight, to proclaim the the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make disciples of all the nations. That's the only thing that he's left us here really to do, even as we live life here on earth. And we need to be faithful in doing so. Well, these are five observations from war and uh, <clears throat> instructions for the people of Israel. And hopefully the, you see and understand some of the application for us today. The war against Midian was the very first battle that that second generation of Israel fought. It would be a battle that they would all remember. It would set the stage. It would set the pattern for Israel's need to be faithful to God as they enter the promised land and begin to conquer the various cities and, the, and, and defeat and destroy the Canaanites that dwelt in the land. And through this battle, God was teaching and preparing Israel for, the, for these many coming battles. He was teaching Israel of their need to trust and follow his instruction for war. 
For he is the Lord of the universe, and he calls his people to fight according to his ways. As God's people today, let us then take on the full armor of God. Let us put on the armor that God calls us to put on, he has given to us. Let us put it on and let us stand firm. Let us be prepared to resist the attacks of the evil one, but to proclaim these truths to the lost and dying world, to, to rescue, as it were, those who are perishing without Christ. We need to trust and follow his instructions for the war we face. Let us be faithful to him. And so I'll just leave you a couple questions as we think about some of the applications that this passage may have for us. How often do you think about the spiritual battle that you're in? You know, I would venture to guess that your prayer life probably reflects it. The more that you realize that you're in a battle, that you're at war, the more you're going to be praying and asking God for help. If our prayer life is weak, it's probably because we don't realize the spiritual battle that we're in. And the danger that, there is a danger to our souls. So Satan is prowling about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And he wants them attack us, but he also is holding captive those who are dead in sin. We need to be praying. That's why in Ephesians 6, 10, the, after the armor of God, and how does it end? It ends with Paul saying, pray for me. Pray for us. Let's, with all prayer and petition, let's be praying about this battle that we are going through. Secondly, what can you do to be more faithful in fighting the spiritual battle that God called us to do? How can you be more faithful? And just think about that. I mean, various applications there, things you can do. Thirdly, how does your salvation from death spur you to live your life? Uh, hopefully for him and for, to be faithful uh, in service to him. With that, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for these truths. Even as we read this, uh, of this passage that of Midian, the Midian's destruction at the hands of Israel, we see your complete justice, your vengeance being poured out upon a people, a nation that, were, that had opposed you and opposed your people. And Lord, we pray that, um, <clears throat> that as, we, as we have observed these lessons from Israel's waging war, that we would remember that you too have called us to a war. Help us to fight this, the war, the spiritual battle that you've entrusted to us. Help us to be faithful to, and courageously to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us to take up this, this armor, to put it on, to take up the sword, and to be in prayer. Help us to work together in this endeavor. Lord, and we most importantly praise you and thank you. For we know that we have, been, we are, we have already been saved through your Son. And so, Lord, therefore, we live our lives for you. May you be glorified through the faithfulness of this church as we follow your instructions to go into our world and to fight the good fight until you call us home. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.